and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, the podcast where I, Fox Lee, she, her, make him, Talon Lee, he, him, watch all the Disney Animated Canon movies that he may or may not have missed during his weird-ass childhood. And, uh, we have finally gotten to the point of the things I thought of when I thought, oh yeah, I could watch all of those. <laughs> you didn't realise you were in for like 40 years of Garbo. Yeah. 25 episodes and we've hit a movie I thought, oh yeah, I'd watch that. Wait, it's 1989. It's about 50 years now. Oh yeah. Oh, but the last 10 wasn't like pure Garbo. There were some good ones in I, there. It's closer to 60 years. You remember they started in 1930. <laughs> oh, I thought it was like 37 or something. Yeah. I always get Snow White wrong. It's Call okay. myself a di- fake Disney nerd. All right. Well, we're watching 1989 Disney's The Little Mermaid, Send Feet Part 2. It is, yes, I'm just gonna, I'm putting another point on the scoreboard. I can think of at least five, and we shall see if there's any more that I forgot about. If we include boys, there are two more. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure if boy foot culture has quite the same momentum. As girl foot culture, but, uh, you know, honorary mentions at the very least. Are we getting sidetracked by this? We're supposed to talk about this movie. (laughs) Yes, what does happen in this movie? It's your turn to tell us, isn't it, Talon? Yes, it's my turn to do the plot in 60 seconds. All right. A feature that we stole from another podcast that I have since learned has stolen it from another podcast. Listen, summarizing the plot of a movie quickly is not original art. I think that's the word. (laughs) No, it's prior art. That's it. Well. Uh, are you ready to go? Are you in the headspace? I am. Are you ready? Do you want it? Do you want it? Put me in, coach. All right, go. Ariel, a willful but exploratory young girl, maybe 12 to 14 years old, is super interested in human culture and wants to investigate it. One day while investigating it, she sees a dude, has some modest interaction with him, winds up getting a crush. She wants to explore further. Her dad, the king of the merfolk, cracks down on this, and in response to this incident of marginalization, she turns to some way of demonstrating agency, which involves getting help from an evil sea witch, classic mistake, that then results in an unfair bargain where she has to try and convince the prince to fall in love with her within three days, or she loses the human disguise she's getting to do this, and becomes a scrubby little seaweed thing forever. The witch, seeing that Ariel is actually capable of doing this, interrupts oh. and... <laughs> God no, damn it! No, interference! I'm calling interference! No. You don't get to make me laugh while I'm doing no. it! That doesn't count! That doesn't count! All right, no, all right. throw Your it out, throw it out! five seconds starts now! Go! <laughs> ah, you wasted it laughing! Rookie mistake! <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> Well, you covered most of it. <sighs> How does it end, Talon? I'm sure everyone's dying to know. They stab her with a ship. <laughs> oh, yeah, they do. It's fucking cruel. You'll never know how good I could have been, because you didn't have faith in me. <laughs> I, I admit I lost faith in you when, she was, when you said she was 12 to 14 years old. The movie tells you her age. She tells you her age. She's 16. The age that all Disney princesses will be from this point on until otherwise specified. Fair enough. The read I got on her feels a lot younger. 
but whatever. She's got a really young looking, like old style Disney face. Yeah, and I mean like she does get married at the end of this movie, which, you know, sixteen is also too young for that. But it is, yes. I mean sixteen is too young for any of the stuff that she gets to do, but sixteen is exactly the age that twelve to fourteen year old girls think you should be able to do all the stuff that she does. Yeah. So, you know, points for knowing their audience, I guess. Well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> As a twelve to fourteen year old girl back then. Actually, no, I would have been even younger than that, I think. You were six. But the point is... I was not six. You were six in 1989. No. Oh, my God. I felt so much older than six in 1989. <laughs> to be fair, you've been a crotchety 30 since you were eight. <laughs> yeah, okay. Point taken. I was not by any means a tween. So, let's talk about your relationship... Hang on. Pull, pulls out the couch, stretches out, pulls out the notes. Tell me about your relationship with this movie. Uh, well, uh, you you probably would have guessed that I'm not a huge mark for princess movies. Uh, I was I had spent my childhood pretending to be Robin Hood up until this point, so you are gonna win me over just by having a girl do some actual agency type stuff in her movie for once. Uh, but you could win me over by giving me that song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, cause, cause, cause Fox, I mean, I'm not a theater kid. For starters, that's not really a thing in Australia, or at least it wasn't in the 80s. Um, but I am, Well, even say, if it was a theater, even if it was a thing in the 80s, we're not American. That's so. what I mean. Like, it's, it's, uh, it might be a thing now, I'm saying. Right, okay. You know, if, if somebody who's in high school right now picked up the internet and called me and said, Fox, what are you talking about? Theatre kids are totally a thing. I'd have to be like, well, I guess so. Do we have cheerleaders now too? God, I hope not. I graduated 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, you know, this wasn't my favourite movie. Um, but by Christ, I love that song. I taped this movie by having a tape recorder sit next to the TV while we watched it. And I listened to it many, many times over. Some parts more than others. Which song? Which song do you think? I'm just saying, say it for the audience. Oh, like, part of your world, obviously. Right, okay, just thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the time I found a section where we had clearly just been making facial gestures at one another for 13 seconds of complete dead air. <laughs> I... I wasn't announcing the song because I honestly thought nobody could mistake what song I would be talking about in this context. It's the song. Yeah, it's true. The, and the movie it, hangs on this fucking song. It is a very girl becomes anthem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's this is fucking this song is like crack to a child who who has been praised for their voice and and is, you know, a young woman just starting to have an idea that they might be growing into a person. Uh, yeah, I get... <laughs> it was well targeted for the demographic, I guess is what I would say. The demographic, I suppose, being Disney goes back to making movies for girls. Mm. Well, goes back to is an interesting position. Well, this is a fucking swing from Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. Absolutely. And Black Cauldron, which Absolutely. are definitely little boy movies. Mm. And Fox and the Hound, come to think of it. Like, we were coming off a string of boyish films. Well, we'll uh, be delving into that later on. I mean, for clarity, I'm obviously speaking about marketing demographics here, which doesn't get to say shit about your gender or what you like, but... Mm -hmm. 
Uh, what about you? This one you actually recalled having a relationship with, right? Yeah, and it's not... It's not cool. Um, so, I have memories of... Like, age-wise, the absolute youngest I could have been is seven or eight. My mum rented this movie at Video Easy. Um, or, well, what might have been the beta store at that point, or whatever we had before we had Video Easy as a chain. You know, that's a good point. I would have been seven or eight as well, because I definitely didn't see this in a theatre. Right. And my mother rented it, and it was a special thing, because we didn't often rent movies like this to watch. Uh-huh. Um, and my sister and I and my mother all sat down to watch it together, and as best I can tell, I completely ruined my sister's experience of that movie. <laughs> By freaking out and screaming and crying nonstop for the end of it. <laughs> to the point where I had no oh. idea how this movie ended. They did make you into a, a fearful child. Yeah, and like, when you believed actual Satan, yeah. like, actually existed and wandered around and actually did things, I gotta say uh, that looking back on it, the transformation sequence just, yeah, well, obviously. Like, the scope of evil uh ursula represented was something that i hadn't really seen outside of and i'm sorry for bringing it up again unicron from the transformers <laughs> <movie. laughs> oh yeah she does sort of become uh, like a global scale mm. uh power entity at the end of it which is not unicron scale but within the context of ocean versus space mm-hmm. she occupies a similar amount of it and further to that I also um, had at that point in my life drowned twice. Mm. So I was just all kinds of hot buttons about that. <laughs> I would have been scared. Yeah, but like leaving the room was apparently not an option for my tiny brain. Um, so instead I decided to make the experience awful for my sister and I really apologize about that. Oh, come on. I'm sure decided was not really a factor here. Hmm. I'm sure you were a child freaking the fuck out. It's true. I was definitely freaking out. And if it was any other kid, you would have told them that it wasn't their fault. Anyway. So, hey, double take. Yeah, I surprised myself because my memory of this film isn't like that old. I, I've seen it a couple of times since my first watch. And uh, there are still things that I picked up this time that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, like, for starters, how obviously the, the CG comes through in retrospect. Uh, like, from the second they put that ship on the screen, you're like, oh, right, yeah, they were doing this back, a, back in this era, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, which is mostly aged well, I have to say. We'll talk about it a little more when we get to the artistic uh, aspects of the film, I guess. Uh, there's one word that jumped out at me that I know I didn't understand at the time, and it's another question of American accents as well. Because uh, when Scuttle's fiddling around with the pipe, and uh, it, it doesn't do what he expects it to, he says, I guess you could make a planter out of it or something. But he says, planter. And I thought, like a day planter? Yeah. Like, I never understood what the fuck that was about, and only this time did it click and make me go, oh, like you, you could put it, herbs in it or something. Yeah, like, no <laughs> jokes. I, I have memories of that same <laughs> planner kind of moment when I was a kid. It's an accent you totally miss. Mm-hmm. Oh, similarly, rake him across the coals in Ursula's song. 
That was a line that I did not understand the word. Just once again, didn't catch the actual lyrics, but mm. the general sounds. I'm like, oh, I guess that must be a thing people say. Well, now I know. Yeah. You got any of these, by the way? I have one big one for the double take. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I'd like to save that for the grand thesis. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I'll just roll straight into my final double take, which is that while I remembered almost everything pretty clearly about this movie, I forgot that in the climax when Eric goes after Ursula uh, and, and they're down under the sea and she's negotiating with Triton, he comes for her with a harpoon. Yeah! She gets fucking harpooned. Yeah! I... Like, I remembered the big finale with the ship prowl, but I forgot that he came out there with a weapon and intent. Yeah. And that's that's just really kind of cool to see from a Disney dude. Yeah. I, that was actually one of my notes that's going to come up in the grand thesis. <laughs> uh, and that's all I've got for Double Take. What's our next segment? Our next segment, then, is the dulcet creaking oh. of the yikes door. How could I forget? So, the Yikes Door, a.k.a. Product of Its Time, which is going to get yikes here now because the time is our lifetimes and there's <laughs> lots less excuse for us. Yeah, we're definitely getting to the should have known better. There is a thing I thought wrong about this movie. Oh, yeah? There is a detail about this movie that I thought a lot worse of, and I just wanted to clarify. Sebastian's voice actor is a guy named Samuel Wright, who died this year in May. And is he actually Jamaican? He's not Jamaican, or. but he's a black guy from South Carolina. And quite frankly, if you're a black guy from the South, you probably have relatives in Jamaica. I'm not saying I'm going to do a freaking cladistics lesson on whether or not he's allowed to do that nope. accent. It's not really our business anyway. And I may just be shell-shocked after dealing with the fucking Aristocats. <laughs> but I'm genuinely happy to go, oh, that black voice actor did a black voice and that's their judgment call to make. Yep, that's, uh, I'm, I'm not going to sit here classifying people by racial extraction in in uh, <laughs> high detail uh, to determine whether or not an accent is fair, because we, we're not talking about that, we're just talking about it's time for white guys to stop doing that shit. Mm -hmm. And in this case, a white guy didn't. Which is great news. <laughs> yeah. That, that's very pleasing. I suspect the same is true of most of the uh, guest voices for the band who have similar accent, because... Like, if they're not playing important character roles, they probably got musicians. Yeah. And that sounds like a group. Alas, I didn't look into that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. That's just a guess. And, uh, you know, that would be that would be really nice, too. Shout out to the most important character from Kingdom Hearts, Chubb Play the Tub. Chubb Play the Tub is in Kingdom Hearts? I don't know. <gasps> he really went places. <laughs> um, There is also the Blackfish in Under the Sea, which... <laughs> that was a little yikes. I... It's a black-faced, big-lipped, sassy dancer. Yeah. I don't know how comfortable I should feel about that. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it blackface, because blackface is for white people doing a cartoon mm -hmm. look-alike of black people. And that's, I mean, presumably that is what the fish looks like normally, but it's still a, a rubber face kind of character. Yeah, it's, all, a, it's is... an invocation. Yeah, exactly. Of minstrelry. And, like, yeah. it's not, like I said, not my place after all the whole... Black minstrelry thing didn't happen here the same way it did in America. 
we mostly didn't let black people appear on any kind of theatrical position. <laughs> How can we make it clear that our racism is entirely separate from the U.S.'s racism without, for a moment, trying to downplay our own racism? Exactly, theory? exactly. Yeah, we're terrible, we're the worst. Anyway, uh, and of course, the biggest and most prominent yikes in the whole thing, Ursula. The, I guess she is a bit yike. The contrived knot of... A drag performer's gender-confusing play being appropriated without paying her or him. I'm not sure about the actual performer's pronouns. The way that Ursula's fatness is is weaponized for horror. The all-consuming outsider marginalized woman. The fact that she used to be royal and was therefore at one point a queen. Like, there is so much stuff here that's just... Yep, they kind of used all the parts of the oh no. <laughs> they, uh, it's a really weird one. Because, like, the the character is also very beloved. Yeah. Particularly by queer fans. Yep. And, and fat fans. So it's, I mean, we're going to have this, this problem with a lot of the Disney villains going forward. Yeah. Because they are very queer coded for at least the next decade. Uh, and they're a lot of fun. So they're at once a bundle of problematic elements and also just really enjoyable to be around. And that's a difficult combination. But you did bring up one thing which is much more yikesy than I was giving consideration for. Which is that she was actively modelled on a person who was in no way compensated despite themselves being in a heavily marginalized group, so... Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, they could have done better on that front. I never mm -hmm. really thought about that, but... All right, well, slamming shut that particular yikes door. We're going to get very comfy here. Uh, but for now, it's time for Between the Lines, which is where we talk about the uh, art and animation and increasingly voice acting and, I'm guessing, music <laughs> of these movies. Uh, I already made my probably most relevant notes about this one uh, in terms of the use of CG, mm. uh, which has aged pretty well in this. Yeah. In a couple of rough moments, Ariel coming down the stairs was a, a very, like, background shifts dramatically into the flat colors. Uh, and we had a similar one. But they also didn't use those shots for long. It's not like in Oliver and Company where they held on that thing for like the belt <laughs> of a song. It's just a sequence. It's true. They did use it for like a dramatic uh, moment, but it was like a dramatic 3D sequence. So, you know, do what you gotta do. The ships look a lot better. I'm yeah. assuming they're CG in every case, but they don't stick out remarkably. You only really notice it if you're, you know, used to looking for this kind of thing. And the CG techniques used here are the same as in... Basil? Yeah, in Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. Where they would animate the thing in 3D and then they'd get artists to hand draw over them. Because we are now getting to that point where Disney has the human resources to throw <laughs> lots of them at things. Yeah, boy, were they uh, building up steam in this era. Mm-hmm. Directorially, we have Clements and Muska, who neatly dodged a very large bullet <laughs> on the Black Cauldron. Yeah, and uh, and then immediately went on to become the shepherds of the Disney Renaissance, basically. Like, this, what Milt Carl was for our, uh, our 60s and 70s lineup, these two are for our 90s lineup, basically. There are essentially three major names in the making good version of the Renaissance narrative. Musker and Clements are two of them, and the third one hasn't shown up, and we'll get to him. But, 
Yeah. Well, for now, I'll just stick a pin in this being the the uh, first time I have seen my personal favorite Disney composer show up. Uh, this is Alan Menken's. Yes. First. Uh, well, okay, it might not be his first. I might have just missed him in previous credits, but this is the first time I've spotted him, and it, it, it is, shows. <laughs> this is his first one, and it is his first collaboration with Ashman. Right, yes. Who doesn't show up as often. No, because Ashman died in 1990. Oh! Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, right. He he worked on this and then didn't work anymore. He also worked on A Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> like, this guy was good. I, I'm sure all of these uh, people worked on many other films as well as the Disney Renaissance, because they were not people with small minor careers. Yep. Though, uh, Ashman was 40 when he passed away. Jeez. Menken's still alive. Yeah, now, I mean, this... This is in our lifetime, as you said. These are not old guys anymore. This is a line that Fox... This is a line I've used in previous discussions of queer community as we members of it um, have dealt with the strange jaggedness of our environment. Is that we live between two oblivions. The AIDS virus wiped out our elders. Ashman should be alive. He, he would be 80 at this point, and he would have had... 40 more years of... Sorry, he'd be 70 at this point, and he would have had 30 more years of shepherding younger people and helping to foster younger queer talent and keeping an eye out for the people who he knew were like him in a place and time which wouldn't be allowing him. And we lost him to a plague. I Do we need to provide context in case the listener isn't aware? Because I just went, oh yeah, that's right. He's oh right. yeah, sorry. But we didn't actually address what happened, though I think it... But, Easy to infer from your speech, perhaps. Yeah, Ashman passed away from AIDS. Uh, he was HIV positive, and he told Menken the day that they won all of the awards for the music on The Little Mermaid. And that meant that he worked on the next movie he worked on mostly remotely. Anyway, now, from one Grim Spectre to a different Grim Spectre, I promise you this should, hopefully, be the last time I say this... <laughs> This is about Katzenberg or Eisner. This is actually the last movie Walt Disney worked on. Oh my god, Talon, you can't keep saying that. <laughs> no one will believe you. They originally storyboarded this movie before Snow White. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Walt Disney yeah, worked no, on... No, they were working on Rapunzel in 1924. <laughs> the vision of Walt when he was a young man. But you know what it was going to be? This? Yeah. The plan? The Little Mermaid? The plan oh, was... Oh, wait! Little Mermaid, but with dogs and cats. Oh, that would be great. No, The okay, Little Mermaid... Little Mermaid, but with mice. <laughs> mice and mermaids. Mermice. No, 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 Fox. You're thinking too creatively. <laughs> I really... They were almost going to do a Hans Christian Andersen package bundled oh, movie. Oh, <laughs> my God. It was going to be one of the package... Because, of course, they had so many fairy tales. Which means that, by the way, I, I'm going to put a pin on this because I fucking guarantee that when we do the Frozen episode, you will be going, well, <laughs> Disney did work on storyboarding. <laughs> I, I'm calling it now. Um, you did, however, bring up Katzenberg, who, I uh, just want you to know, tried to sink this movie. <laughs> yeah, this piece of crap was never going to do well. Yep. Do you know, why do you think he th said in meetings, this piece of crap is never going to do well? It's for girls. It's for Appealing to females. Piece of shit. <laughs> and <laughs> he wanted to cut, he wanted to cut a song because the little kids in the first test audience 
got bored of it. He wanted to cut part of your world. He wanted to cut part he of your world. He wanted to cut the song that won an Oscar. Did it win an Oscar? <laughs> Probably won that an up. Oscar. Should have won an Oscar. If it had been three years later, it definitely would have won an Oscar. Yeah. So there's that. And uh, one final note in the Between the Lines segment, the making of. Uh, the Chef. The Chef is an actor by the name of Rene Obonyono. I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but... <laughs> the Chef is a self-portrayed racist French caricature. Well, he's an actor that myself and many of my friends would recognize as Odo from Deep Space Nine. Oh. This tall, gaunt, amazingly threatening-looking Frenchman who... Huge, extensive career, and also he was this comical... French chef. So you just, I want you to, to put that image of Odo into your head. I'm not too familiar with this character, but like focus on it really, you know, key and imagine what he sounds like. And then he's like, La Poisson! <laughs> he's the cop in Deep Space Nine with the rubbery face. I don't, I, you, like, you're overestimating the number of characters I could bring to mind for Deep Space Sorry, I'm not a Star Trek person. That's fine. <laughs> Is the, are there Jedi in that one? That's a trick question. Jedi suck. Are there Ewoks in that one? Moving on. So, the grand thesis of this movie, the big message, the thing that stood out to me upon a rewatch that I felt, like, needed to be addressed. You have a grand thesis for this movie? This movie is so much better than my half-memories and an <laughs> internet full of sassy complaining has ever fucking prepared me for. Oh, yeah, Ariel gets so much shit for, like... If you describe it in the most basic premise of like, yeah, yeah, you know, the moral of her story is to give up everything for a man and never talk again. And, you know, that's that's clearly the message being presented here. And it's completely unfair to a character who is just not that bad. She's not that bad. Her decisions make sense. Even her relationship with her dad makes sense. Triton sucks. Well, that's the thing. Triton sucks less than I thought he sucked. <laughs> he still kind of sucks. Do, don't get me wrong. There is still some stuff about Triton that sucks that I want to talk about in whatever land. But, like, the very first thing he does after he orders her, look, don't go to the surface, which the way he talks about it, that's a societal rule. That's not you, uh, you, you are breaking a rule I laid down. It's you are doing something that we as a culture do not do. Good or bad decision, not the important point. But the first thing he does is he immediately turns to Sebastian and goes like, did I just go too far? Like, he literally doubts whether or not he was reasonable. He's not the raging asshole he comes across as in a lot of the retellings and reconceptualizations of this. He's not good. No. He's not a, he's not a good dad. But he's so much less unreasonable than he is normally depicted as being. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, minor things that make him seem more ridiculous. But they're, you know, they're YouTube nitpicks. They're cinema sins. They're not meaningful things. If you're taking the movie in, in an honest spirit of how it intends to be taken, they're not issues. Like, you know, <laughs> he had a concert to celebrate all his daughters singing about how great he is. Yeah. What a wanker. I, I'm pretty sure it was Sebastian's idea anyway. That's another He's thing. He's exactly the kind of sucker who would crawl to Titan by having his daughters sing his praises. Yeah. This romance is so much better developed than I remembered. <laughs> Yeah, they do a bunch of stuff together. They have fun. The the meet cute is not as simple as she sees him on a boat. She sees his character. She sees how he treats the people around him. She sees him reacting to the statue of himself. She sees him rescue a dog. 
she sees him save his fellow humans and then go back to save his dog. This man is a prince. Wait, that's literally... Well, you know what I mean. He... That, and the thing is, she rescues him and makes sure he's okay. And yes, she has a crush on him at this point. She is mooning over him at this point. But it's not this snap, oh, whoops, I'm done. It is a ongoing part of her existing interest in the narrative. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, the the big thing Disney did to develop this character, in my mind, was give her some motivation outside of the romance. And, you know, it directly informs the romance, absolutely, but it means that this isn't like, oh, she saw a hot guy and now she's entirely about him. No, she's been about humans forever. Mm -hmm. It's just like, here came walking along a big, hunky, hot manifestation of her interests. Yeah. And he turns out to be really great. Yeah. Like, it's not hard to buy at all. The the only really sus thing about it is Ursula's idea that you can get true love out of three days. Which I assume is supposed to be a trap, so I guess she doesn't really yeah, believe it either. And, but. and, like, true love is a complicated thing to throw into the narrative, because yeah. that... That could be metaphysical, that could be psychological, that could just be a story point. It, it's something that's hard for us to tease at in the same way, because it's undefined, because you're just supposed to know. And specifically, it seems to be vulnerable to marrying someone else under coercion, yeah. so it's not really anything that you would identify as true love. Like, you can't, you can't break actual devotion and affection by having someone else compromise your agency. Yeah. So, you know, once again, you, you have to take the movie as it intends to be taken. Secondarily to this, there is a really interesting uh, Rex Kerr. Uh, I'm going to sound such a broken record here. <laughs> but Ariel and Scuttle's relationship to human culture is play. It is playful. <laughs> she is collecting these things to play with them, to play at the idea of humanity. She is interested in the statue, and what does she do with it immediately? She plays with it. The entire narrative of her relationship with humanity starts out through playful engagement in a safe space where she is allowed <laughs> to do that, and where the tokens themselves have no meaningful worth, but in the context of the play, they mean everything. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the version of a dating sim you could do if all you have is... A bunch of collectible trinkets and an imagination. Like, it's pretty charming, honestly. And then you have her I Want song. And I Want songs get so much shit because they effectively almost always are framed as princess who has stuff wants more stuff. And the thing is, in <laughs> this case, no. She doesn't have stuff. What she has is this play experience. She has collected a pile of garbage to play at the experience of humanity. And this is a way that play leads us into becoming. And so, like, it's so frustrating that they fucked up a drag performer's <laughs> life with this movie because that's, that is such a narrative right there. It's a very, um, I mean, this song in particular is the one that gets the shit because she literally says, no big deal, I want more. Yeah. And people seem to think that that is, like, accurate like she wants more corkscrews like she is actually spoiled but like it, it's an irony because she doesn't actually have the thing that she cares about and that means that that want is this very pure very whole thing of i have played with this i have understood myself through play 
but what I want is more than the play. And that's super interesting. Um, there's also, you could draw a line to the fact that when Triton drives away her play and deprives her of this ability to have this safety, she is immediately prey for someone who is going to exploit her, mm. which stories of marginalization right there. Kind of a thing going on there. And the actual moment where she signs the contract that I found really interesting, the thing she does, she steals herself, closes her eyes, and draws her body up in response to a moment where Ursula exerts pressure, which has this very strong communication to me of, I'm going to show I can do a thing. I'm going to exert some agency when I feel that everyone is telling me I can't. I mean, that's kind of the point of, of only having her willing to act on this when when she's at her lowest point. I mean, yeah, she doesn't hate her dad. That's another point. They make a point that she actually likes her dad. But she has nowhere to go from here. So, yeah, like, the romance in this is reasonably well-developed. The characters have reasons to be interested in one another. They find each other interesting. Yeah, it's basic, and yeah, it's fast, but also, it's for little kids. It is for little kids. <laughs> I mean, if anything, Eric's the one who should probably get some shit for falling in empty love. But also, he he's had a near-death experience. That is true. We're going to remember that she also saved his life, which is not a good reason to fall in love with someone, but it does sweeten the pot a little bit. And he spends multiple nights pining for her. He plays her music to the waves, which... Holy crap, that's... <laughs> it's quite a romantic, isn't he? Yeah, that's not a gesture you engage in <laughs> if you don't think that feelings can beat logic. Well, that's what I mean, like, if if anybody is just being silly and infatuated here, it's it's kind of him. But they do counter that by having him almost fall for her instead, because to the best of his knowledge, she is the counterpoint to his stupid, whimsical romance. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he likes her, and they have fun together. It's a super smile. interesting thing. Yeah, he's she's effectively in a love triangle with herself. It's a cute concept. And it's just so much more interesting. Well, okay, not more interesting, but I feel like it's a really good modern take on the original story. Because the original story is not here to have a good time. The original story is here to be fucking tragic and probably a gay metaphor. At the risk of being super annoying, it's a great postmodern take because it examines the structure of the original <laughs> narrative. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but we don't like postmodernism. Eh, eh. Fuck you. <laughs> Pretty sure if I liked it, it's not postmodernism, right? Yeah, exactly. Pretty sure if children liked it, it can't be postmodernist. Yeah, yeah. Every, everything good can't be postmodern because, you know, all, all the people are out there getting into fucking truck stops watching Baudrillard. Oh, no, Talon, I think you misunderstand. It can't be postmodern if it's not challenging. <laughs> I hate all people on both sides of this <laughs> argument. I mean, what, I, I'm, I staked my position in this debate when I declared that I was a Disney fan of significant girls. <laughs> the, the Disney Renaissance is super postmodern, just, just so people know. Just like, not in the way that people usually mean it. Yeah, no, they're, they're incredibly postmodern. Um, and, like, yeah, there you go, there's my grand thesis. The Little Mermaid is a pretty good love story. <laughs> and I would go even further. It's a pretty good story. Yeah. It's, I mean, we have done nothing if not observe a history where Disney didn't know how to do a story efficiently, where Disney did not know how to cut the unnecessary stuff. Yeah. Um, where, like, 
the best things you could say about some films is that it was fun when they were faffing around rather than tedious. Yeah, the, the pure animation moments in films where we were like, oh yeah, they're, they're, there's nothing wrong with doing that for a bit of fun. But also, this does that stuff for a bit of fun. Like, Flotsam and Jetsam, someone loved animating those two. <laughs> but the rest of the movie doesn't suffer for it. It's actually a pretty interesting movie that doesn't waste a lot of time. No, this thing moves in a crack. And it, do- it does what you need to do if you want to tell a story in a time span appropriate to children, which is they're doing more than one thing all the time. Yeah. Like, every time we see someone, we're going to learn a bit more about who they are, or they're going to do something that directly affects the plot. Probably both. Even the moments where a character is doing something to be funny, it's part of another sequence. Scuttles. All of Scuttles pratfalling and goofing around and effing up and being an idiot that makes kids laugh is all conveying plot. It's also kind of an entertaining commentary on, um, uh, well, you, you know the kiss the girl scene? Yeah. Uh, where he's the one who starts the song and he does this by coming in and landing on a branch full of bluebirds and like shoving them out of the way. Like that's not a direct commentary on all the Disney princesses and their sweet little birdie friends. Yep. Like, this is what happens when you get a seagull instead of a bluebird. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't, I I did not have a grand thesis for this one, but I like yours and I'm on board with it. Uh, this, I think this movie really set a standard for me in terms of, like, you could put a romance in a movie and still do, like, cool action shit and, like, you could do all the things, especially if you're a kid's movie. You don't have to choose between being funny and romantic and action-packed and scary. You could just do it all. And I feel like that's really characteristic of the Renaissance. They just did it all. Mmm. And it's a musical. And it, boy, hell, it's a musical. Like, I, I believe I observed previously that I'm calling uh, Oliver and Company the first real musical of this era. But, like, this is where it crystallized into a perfect gem that would define childhoods. <laughs> for sure. I mean, this is... We discovered watching the really early Disney stuff that when people think about classic Disney musicals, they're mostly not thinking of the old ones. Not a lot of them really fit. I mean, the dwarves sing a song diegetically. There are a bunch of songs in Snow White. They're just really weird. I think all the songs in Snow White are diegetic. They're just, yeah, weird. And there's not much of a reason for most of them to exist. Here and there. But yeah, it's... I, I really think when people talk about Disney musicals, the Renaissance is the shit they really mean. Uh, but that being said, we move on, as ever, to the uh, magical vistas of Whateverland. The introduction has been changed in the Disney Plus stream version. It has! They got that fucking 3D castle with the longer version of the music and like, there's no fucking way this didn't have the <laughs> one that we talked about last time. Ha! Bah, you can't fool me, gaslights. <laughs> uh, in the opening 30 seconds of this movie, Eric already has more personality than every fucking Disney prince we've seen so far. We instantly find out what he's about. He, he has a like. He likes boats. Oh my god, this is a live one. <laughs> Sebastian is Jiminy Cricket 2.0. Oh my god. <laughs> he's a fucking little crab cop, isn't he? Just the worst little (laughs) shitty knock. I mean, he doesn't moralize directly at her for the most part, but he sure does kids these days. He talks to the audience at one point about about how rough he has it. 
Fuck you. Uh, fuck you, you little squirt. You're a composer. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing trying to raise kids? Well, I mean, that's on Triton. I, it, why he decided that Sebastian would be the uh, the appropriate person to follow her around is fucking beyond me. Mm. <laughs> He'd be like, but I have a job, man. I'm so I, We have rehearsals all next week. What the fuck? Well, man. I think it's because Sebastian was sitting there next to him saying, oh, here I am. I have opinions on this. Well, I definitely yeah, so think okay. I know what I'm talking about. Like, Triton's big mistake was believing Sebastian, which you'll find is a recurring problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, I'll give you that. Imagine being one of the fucking backup sisters, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I I get it. They're not important to the story. We're just going to treat them like nobody's, but ooh, that's <laughs> rough, man. It is a bit rough, especially when they went back to this well with sequels. Like, you have all these <laughs> sisters just waiting to have their stories be told. But no, I guess we got to go back to Ariel. Mm, more Ariel. Yeah, I, I mean, there was a whole TV series that, that you could have had them be characters in, but uh, that's mm. too many mermaid princesses, I guess. Higher levels of the ocean are actually more dangerous. Uh, there's more prey and therefore more predators and bigger predators. You get uh, most of the big bony fish up in that area where they can still see sunlight. So if merfolk are living down on the ocean floor then, yeah, the surface is actually a pretty dangerous place. There are, like, orcas up there, man. Okay, well, yeah, but I feel like the ocean floor is a bit of a stretch in this. It's clearly not that low down. Yeah. Unless we're given to understand, I guess, that Ariel's cave is, like, super close to the surface. Yeah, I don't know. But there are, like, entire shipwrecks, and it does not take her long to swim right up to the surface from there. There are a lot of complicated questions about scale in this movie, none of which matter. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Betcha on land, they understand, and they don't reprimand their daughters. Sorry, honey. Yeah, I got some bad news for you bad there. Bad news for you, sweetie. Yeah, like, you know, good dads don't, and from what we can see, the ocean has one dad, so maybe... There are a couple of points where this movie reuses symbolism in ways that I really quite like, and one of them is in the shipwreck, the icon of Eric sinking beneath the waves as the actual man Eric lives without it. Like, there is this impression of this is what Eric should be, and we're not going to show you this, uh, because it, it's almost like communicating, like, the static characterization of a Disney prince is no more. We are instead showing you someone who does something. <laughs> oh, interesting. I like it. I doubt it was deliberate, but I enjoy that reading. Yeah, subliminal... Subliminal meaning is is placed into a bunch of stuff, and it's not and it's subliminal not because it's trying to infest your brain, but because it already infested the creators. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was repeatedly in this movie very impressed by Ariel's upper body strength. Like she hauls herself up ropes and and uh, up to uh, openings she can look through and stuff, and she can't be doing that with a ta with a like lower body strength. Yeah. So those tiny little princess arms are doing work. I mean, it makes sense that merfolk seem to just generally be pretty strong. I guess. I don't think we really see that elsewhere. The, I have a whole comic book bullshit style thing here okay. where, like, they, if they can survive at deep pressure levels, then they're clearly capable of, like, enormous muscle strength. And then there's things about how the being able to breathe or aspirate in any way, where which, which would be multi-purpose. Like, again, this is stuff we've done for Aquaman. <laughs> it's not important, but, like, my reaction to... A merfolk is really strong is like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I I mean, it's not that it doesn't make sense if you're trying to make people make some kind of sense. But I don't think we're supposed to think that of Disney princesses. Mm, that's true. 
Eric saves a dog. Eric saves a dog. He is a good prince. <laughs> I agree that this prince is great. <laughs> Eyelash watch. What? Sebastian's giving dating advice. And when you tell a girl how to smooch, you gotta grow some eyelashes. That's super uncomfortable. Yep. There are a couple, again, with the repeated motif. <clears throat> again, with the repeated motifs. There are two different points where a musical number is played to the spot Ariel is not. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't want to nitpick, but I feel like the storm that destroyed Eric's ship might not have been an actual hurricane. <laughs> I think hurricanes at sea are worse. <laughs> I'm not an expert, but... Well, renowned for just whipping up out of nowhere in the middle of the coast of Denmark? I, I'm not gonna try and put... This movie has no fixed real-world location, and nerds who try to give it one are overthinking things. Well, I was just about to give you an explanation for where it could be, but fine, I'll take my geography books and go. <laughs> well, look, there's a lot of places it could be. The point is you can't say where it is, because it's a place with mermaids. Anyway, um... There is also a repeated motif of the destruction of symbols of humanity and then the destruction of symbols of Eric. Further? Uh, you have Triton's destruction of the uh, of the human cultural stuff, yeah. um, which in turn destroys a symbol of Eric. That symbol of Eric itself was also destroyed in the shipwreck. And then later on, you have the, the emblem of her desire to become part of his world, the uh, a locket around... Ursula's throat, which in turn also gets broken. It's just interesting that this is a movie where breaking stuff repeatedly furthers the plot. Fair, fair. Um, speaking of times that songs are delivered to where Ariel is not, I do really enjoy the ending of Under the Sea. Because <laughs> I like the idea that Sebastian is in fact so caught up in his own music that he would totally forget what else was going on. We you all... know he would, yeah. We all know that performer. Yeah, he's that kind of guy. It, it feels very truthy. Any attempts to resuscitate Ursula because, oh, she's so fun, uh, is also <laughs> going to have to run headlong to the fact that she literally runs a prison. Oh, no, she's she's a bad person. <laughs> she's dreadful. She's not just a, a, a misunderstood uh, uh, but delightfully camp uh, meanie pants. She's awful. Yeah, this is this is one of those things that's kind of just a recurrent problem where Disney is actually pretty good at making the villains legitimately really bad. <laughs> so the fact that they queer code them means that like, yeah, you can oh, try yeah. and resuscitate them if you want, but you are resuscitating awful people who've done awful things. No, I mean, we, we uh, yeah. Ne never let it be thought that we're giving Disney credit for, uh, uh you know, fun, queer-coded villains. They're queer-coded because they're bad. We all know how this works. We have the history. While we're talking about Ursula, that seashell she lives in is extremely yonic. Yeah. That... She lives in a suspended underwater vagina, is all I'm saying. I don't argue. Uh, the, the defense has nothing in opposition. <laughs> the motion is passed. I hate Ariel's dresses. <laughs> Why do they keep dressing her in pink? For starters, you do not wear pink, particularly that shade of pink. When you have that shade of red hair, it looks atrocious. Yep. And you can tell they realize this because the Ariel in the current Disney princess merch has a mermaid green kind of dress, yep. which goes really well with her fucking hair. Yep. Oh, 
The one she wears on the Exploring the Kingdom date is fine, though. She looks okay in blue. Just not pink. Just not pink. And then her wedding dress at the end is so fucking, like... <laughs> the shoulders are enormous. Peak 80s, traveling into 90s energy. Just Murphy brown-ass oh, shoulders. It's yeah, great. Yeah, those are the worst shoulders. <laughs> yeah, I, I pretty much hate everything about Ariel's fashion. I'm glad that for most of the movie, she's just wearing seashells. Whereas you know full well that if you gave her, like, modern clothes to dress in, she'd be, like, clam diggers and t-shirts. She'd look great. Probably. Like, the one thing I really noticed about her is that she's kind of a goofball. Yeah. We, it didn't come through at the time, and possibly I'm just noticing it now because I'm, you know, watching it as a pushing 40 woman instead of a pushing 10 girl. But, uh, yeah, she's she's kind of a ding-dong. Yeah, she's great. It's pretty charming. I, I, rem- I remember multiple times having a some variety of critic of movies remarking that she was probably my first crush. And it's like, yeah, that th- this girl is made out of crushanium. Yeah, and like, I'm not into the whole Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing, which she, you know, has a bit of that energy when she's first coming into the palace and she does weird dumb stuff with their human props and, you know, it's adorable. Uh, And I'm not usually here for that, but even when she's in her element, like, as you said before, she's playful. Yeah. And when she's moving around the castle, she's like, you know, she does not move with grace. She doesn't be a Disney princess uh, in in uh, terms of aesthetic and conduct. Mm. She she just be someone who's having a great fucking time. She's a nerd who finally got into her element. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to do that again. Nah, probably not. All right. Well, now that I'm done complaining about her fashion, I think I'm done with everything. That was my last note. Well... That means we have nothing left but for the cold, chill embrace of capitalism. And because these movies are close enough to our lifetimes, they have really detailed information about this on all fronts. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like my guesses are going to get more and more erratic as these budgets just balloon. Yeah, I'm going to say, rather than try and get you to guess the budget and the, the take... Guess the proportion. Yeah, yeah. We'll she'll speak in terms of did it cost twice as much as the last one? Did it make twice as much as the last one? The last one's last season. That's then. That's not it now. I'm not going to bother looking that up. It's true. Um, oh, so you mean what What kind of proportion of its budget did it return? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Many times over. Um... Now, look, we we uh, took in a uh, hundred million last time we yep. we looked at one of these movies, and we were very cross about that. Yeah, um, and I believe Little Mermaid was a bit pricey to make, but nothing like the big budget Renaissance films. Um, so I'm still saying it costs less than a hundred million to make. Um, but if it didn't make twice what Oliver and Company did, I'll be sad. So I'm gonna say it made two hundred million at least. Oh dear. So, Fox. Uh-huh. First up, this movie was made on a bit of a shoestring compared to Oliver and Company. 40 million. Ah, I knew it wouldn't be that expensive. And its initial take in 1989 was only 85 million. Ah, oh, that's not great. No. Well, I mean, it's two to one. It's really quite great, oh, actually. sure. As, as a return, that's good. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's being stonking compared to the previous, like, seven years ago kind of stuff Disney were doing. But... Upon reflection, are we to say that Oliver and Company is $20 million better than The Little Mermaid? Well, that's the other thing. Oliver and Company is $100 million lifetime. The Little Mermaid lifetime <laughs> is $233 million. Hey, that was pretty close! <laughs> yeah, because it was released to cinemas four times. First in 1989, then again in 1997, oh. then again in 2017, and then again 
in 2020. I don't remember any of those re-releases, even though I was alive for all of them. We're not necessarily going to be going to movie theaters to watch The Little Mermaid. It's true, but like I'm generally interested in Disney stuff, especially in 1997. That's, mm. that's the big one that gets like that was peak Disney time for Fo- well, okay, that was one year after peak Disney time for Fox. I was still big in that vibe. Yep, but there you go. And like you know, 93 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Blah blah blah. Defined a generation. Yeah, I. Nobody doesn't like this film, or if they do, they dislike it for bad faith reasons. They've just become memetically correct instead of actually accurate. Yeah, like, there's a lot of discourse about this movie that the more I the more I look back on it is from people who hadn't watched it recently. It's, I mean, if you say it in a summary designed to make it sound silly, yes, it's an atrocious concept. Well, if you say it in a summary that sounds silly, this is still a story about a 16-year-old girl's crush. And yeah, those stories tend to be silly because teenagers are working themselves out. But the story is coherent by its own logic. The romance is incredibly well developed for its ridiculous time frame. And people make emotionally reasonable decisions with the information they have. I can't believe I'm coming out of this going, you know, Triton's kind of been (laughs) flanderized. I remember a friend of mine, uh, I think it's Jacqueline Merritt, doing her treatment of the Kingdom Hearts series, talks about how awful Triton is in that game. Because Triton is someone you have to repeatedly come to and who is repeatedly stonewalling Ariel's decisions. And just by repeating what he's doing in this movie and having it be him doing it, you really transform that character into a much worse, much more abusive father. And you can make the very easily draw of that character from this movie. But in this movie, this guy isn't that... He he is not so emotionally resolute in the ways he treats Ariel badly. And twice the problem is Sebastian, who doesn't know shit, opening his mouth to sound informed and Triton acting on that. Now, you would very easily point out that a good father would not listen to an idiot. Yes, but... I mean, I don't know. I am inclined to have some sympathy for a guy with, like, eight daughters and no co-parent. Yeah. Like, dude's having a rough time, I think. Mm. And by and by not addressing that, it doesn't mean that we're now, like, having to look at all of the actions in terms of how they're dealing with that shared trauma, but is instead how they relate to one another. And how they relate to one another is a struggle, but Triton does get it. Triton at first thinks that the frivolous play is exactly that. And it is endangering her to do it. And then, when he realizes that she can do it without being endangered, he is okay with it. And, like, there is a lot to like about Triton in this. How how much resistance does he put up to putting his own life on the line to save his daughter? Well, that's true, but that's a very... I think you could say that about a lot of bad dads. Yeah. Who would take such a performative act of heroism as an opportunity. So I'm not giving him too many points for that. It's the lack of resistance to it. I'm giving him points for continually checking in with both other people and himself. Mm. Uh, Like he's not fixed in his ways and never willing to take in other opinions. He just doesn't get those other opinions from anyone but Ariel. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. They even give you this moment of him turning away after he trashes the grotto where he's like, you know, he makes the this hurts me more than it hurts you face, which is a bullshit line. But Mm -hmm. it does at least serve to show us that he's second guessing himself even at his worst. Also, just a thought, maybe talk to her sisters about it. Like, 
you know, if you want someone who's on her emotional level, just a thought. I mean, who? Yeah. <laughs> ah, they're no help. He does talk to them about it, remember? Mm. Yeah. They do give her some, and they do give him actionable information. They do. Anyway. But they're clearly not on her wavelength. I don't think they get her any bit. Like, no one gets her. That's the point of this character. And at this point, we're just picking over the movie again. Oh my god, she really is a classic Disney princess. Because she's a weirdo loner who's only friends with animals. Like, the animals can talk this time, but yeah, yeah that's that's how they do. Alright, okay. That I think that's enough yeah, no. relitigating <laughs> internet arguments we aren't actually part of. Stop being mean to the mermaid movie. Like, it's a surprisingly solid little movie. I wouldn't call it a grand feminist text, but honestly, considering some of the bullshit that was happening at the time, it's fucking up less than many did. I wouldn't consider it a grand feminist text, but considering it's in the fucking 80s, where their idea of feminism is, what if women were still useless, but they were loud and obnoxious in their efforts to not be useless? So I'm going to give her full marks. So what movie comes next, Fox? What movie comes next? You may think we're headed straight up the roller coaster upslope of the Disney Renaissance and we're gonna get another amazing musical. It must be Beauty and the Beast, right? Disney leaps from strength to strength with its new paradigm. Yeah, but there's one little odd entry before we get there. So uh, join us next week for the other movie you probably forgot, The Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Dis- Did you have something to share with the class? No, it's just that I'm pretty sure you got that last little bit of what I was saying when you hit record. That's okay. Okay. That's okay. Not a problem, <laughs> We are waiting on minute seven at this point. <laughs> I felt so funny because I thought you were going to be like, God damn it. God fucking damn it. <laughs> no, oh. no fun accents in this for me to use anyway. Nothing, nothing that stands up on the tier of, I'm New Yorking over here. Well, I mean, there is, but it, one should not advisably do it when one is a white boy. Uh, that's true. <laughs>